Hi, my name is Dr. Masa Hoja Kushniad. I'm a clinical social worker. I have a um, basically PhD in clinical social work and a master's in social work. I'm a licensed psychotherapist. Um, we are from Heal and Thrive Psychotherapy and Coaching. It's a little family business offering mental health services to you, and I'm really glad to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, and it's so great to have you here. I know we've tried to coordinate some stuff and it just hadn't worked out. Now I'm like, finally, I get to talk to you because today we are going to be talking about relationship issues, conflicts in relationships. And that is your specialty area, is it not? Yeah, very much so. Yeah, so what we want to do is we want to start to highlight some of the relationship conflicts that are present today and also present people how to deal with them, some sort of tips, tools, and techniques. And uh, so you have presented a brief background of yourself. Can you tell us a little bit more about how you got interested in working with people who are struggling with relationship difficulties? Um, so to be honest with you, we've been, I've been with my husband for 18 years and it hasn't been, you know, it's, it's a marriage, right? It has great points and it has low points and it's all about, you know, loving someone and going through difficulties and the good times with them. And it's been worth it every minute. So very early on, I became interested in relationships because they have such a healing power. When I'm a psychodynamic psychotherapist, we believe in the power of experiences and the way the childhood impacts someone. So by the time we get to our adult lives and start to get into relationships, we're really looking for someone to fulfill some of those missing moments. The concept of the relationship and the power of relationship is to help someone really change, grow, and thrive in the context of their lives, to heal from what they've gone through and be able to become better. So when we think about relationships, we bring with us everything that we have gone through, our own experiences, and who we want to be. As so relationships are such an important space to grow in. And I feel like my marriage has definitely been one of those experiences. Yeah, absolutely. So when you think about relationships, it's not just friendships, but it's romantic connections. It's even relationships at work or in our community. And it, it is really important that we relate to each other. And yet there's so much discord in our world today. And what we do as far as relating to each other is sometimes different. Sometimes there are problems. And so that is what you typically deal with as a, you know, not only a licensed uh, clinical social worker, but also somebody with a PhD. And you are out there helping people to work with these issues, which is so fantastic because these issues come into my office too. So what I thought we'd do is talk about some of the ways relationship issues can present in the office and also how we can help people resolve them. Does that sound okay? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So what 
kind of problems typically come up in your practice? People bring in certain problems. What do you see most often presenting as problems in your practice? To be honest with you, I see a lot of loneliness, people feeling lost, misunderstood, devalued, alone, in a world in which they have many people. So when we think about relationships, relationships are about the emotional connection, understanding, communicating, connecting on many different levels. And as you said, they can have many different shapes and forms. In the today's world, we, the way life is with a lot of distractions that it has, it has really pulled us apart from each other. So is this we really need to attempt to make those connections, like make it a conscious attempt. So in that context, I see people who are very successful in their lives, right? They're doing very well in their careers, happy with, you know, their life circumstances, income, hobbies, all sorts of things, but feeling very lonely and unhappy. Some because but they, you know, they're focused on their priorities at the time and really have missed out on close relationships. Some because of, you know, having had trauma in their past. And it's difficult to overcome that and start again to build trust with someone else. And some is people have kind of like basically pulled apart, whether it's in the form of infidelity, uh, you know, ghosting each other, being mean. Uh, even like click, you know, people getting into clicks and like bullying, things that can happen on social media or in person. So many different forms, but all boils down to how people are seen, felt, understood, and how to help them resolve that. Mm. Yeah, so people being perceived, perceiving themselves as being misunderstood, uh, due to social media or their own relationship issues. And then this loneliness that people feel that they're just, they're maybe at the point of their lives that they are satisfied with their career, but maybe not so much with their personal lives. You know what I see when I think of what comes into my office is uh, people are chronically dissatisfied by the way other people treat them. And not like I have a bunch of clients who come in in victim mode, but they're dissatisfied with the quality of the relationships that they are currently in. If it's a romantic relationship or if it's a friendship or even online relationships, they're just chronically dissatisfied with the quality of those relationships. So that's the thing that I would want to add as well. Absolutely. And I see that a lot. Right. It's this idea that if you don't know who you are, what you mean, what you worth, what you value, it's very hard for you to project that out there and receive that. It's hard to set boundaries if you don't know what you deserve. Mm. And in the world that basically you have access to everyone. I only think I have clients that come in and talk about online dating. And I say to them always, like, when I was dating, there was a specific locations you would go. And each location filtered out who would come in, right? You would go to the library. You would see a set of people who were interested in this. You would go hiking, another set, a bar, a different set. So the filtration was already there. 
you would already bond based on interests or values or what where you were in life. So the choices were more limited and you know more specific. Now you have the world at your fingertips. So as people start to engage, if they don't know who they are, what they want, what they're looking for, and how they want to be treated, it's going to be very difficult to figure mm-hmm. out and find those satisfying relationships. So what you're saying is that you've got to know who you are first when you go out there so that you are able to discern who you want to connect with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's sound advice. So that's that's uh, Dr. Masha's tip number one is know who you are yourself before you go out there and try and find somebody. And I guess what you might, you have alluded to is the online dating and uh, people finding people that may not be appropriate for, for them. Is that right? So I have this rule for online dating. I say to my clients, if you're going to do online dating, do not get emotional involved at first. Mm. I say you have to be analytical. And as you're reading the information the person has posted, you have to be like a detective taking out what are their values, what are their interests, what do they stand for, what are they looking for. Honestly, I tell them, don't even look at the picture. Read the profile with that lens and take notes. If you like what you're seeing and it matches your values, then even start thinking about, do I like this person or not? Yeah, some people are scared to even go on online dating because they're afraid that the person on the other end isn't displaying themselves as they really truly are, right? Maybe we have these values displayed, but when we actually meet them, we find out different things. I know that's commonly uh, true with some of my clients as well. Absolutely. And that's why I ask people Imagine this as a filtering process. Don't think of it as you're going on a date to meet someone and will you like them and will they like you? This is just about are we even on the same you know, path? Mm. Do we even want to have a conversation? Because like I said before, that was resolved for us, right? When I was dating 18 years ago, it was very clear the types of the settings that I would go do that filtration. Now it is not. So in essence, before you even get into a place of, I want to date this person, you get to know them and find out who they are for as a person in the first place. And then partner, and then interest, and so on and so forth. Right. So matching values is really important. Uh, Going in there and being able to rationally evaluate because there's an emotional context and content to online dating that if you look at a person's picture or profile, you might feel an emotion. Even if you meet them, you might feel these intense emotions. And sometimes we forget about the voice of reason and being able to look at, is this person and their values in line with mine, right? Actually, have my tip number two here. There's a technique I use with everyone. And I say, create a green, yellow, and red list before you ever go on and meeting people. 
and I make it that the green is all the things that are important to you that are must-haves, right? In any form of relationship. I want to be respected. I want to be treated as an equal. Whatever that's going to be. And then have your red list, the deal breakers. Things that you will not tolerate. And then the rest kind of falls in the yellow. So before you even get to know anyone for any reason, accept the job, accept the friendship. You already know, would they, are, is there any of the red? Then it's over. There's no point. Are some of the green or most of the green in there? Mm. Then as you get to know the person, you work on the yellow. The yellows are areas of improvement things that you can live with, things that you want to help yourself or the other person grow. But if it turns into a red, it's a red flag. Because you have decided this thing is unacceptable before any emotions were involved. So you have to know what your green and your red zones are at minimum, right? And the yellows are negotiable. What the things that you really want and the things that you absolutely will not tolerate, like you said, deal breakers, and then these other areas in the middle that could use improvement. And if the person is willing to improve, they can go there, right? Absolutely. Well, what if you find somebody online and you think, man, this is the perfect person. I've gone out on a couple of dates. They seem sort of almost too good to be true. And what do you do with that? Because sometimes that does happen in relationships where you find somebody you think is too good to be true. So then the question becomes, why is it too good to be true? Right? Mm. Is it too good to be true because I don't think I deserve this? Right. Is it too good to be true because it just doesn't add up? Right? Mm-hmm. No, and that's where I would like to ask more questions. Right. Is there an explanation that helps me make sense of why does it seem like un, you know, unlikely? The mm-hmm. second layer, or maybe tip number three, is involving trusted friends and family and looking at the person's trusted friends and family. Remember when we're in a relationship of any kind, our emotions are involved. So having somebody we trust to look from the outside and give us feedback, help us see things we may not be able to see. In the same way, the way the, the person you're interested in is treating others outside of you tells us a lot about who that person is as a general rule versus yeah. towards the one person. Very, very sound advice. So seek the counsel of others that know you and can actually objectively and not emotionally uh, evaluate this person's too good to be true status. And then the other thing you mentioned is that that sense of I don't deserve something this good. And uh, that can end up in in self-sabotage. People can just say, I don't deserve this. And so I'm just going to mess it up or subconsciously, of course, because I think consciously people do want really good relationships, but sometimes subconsciously they do mess them up, right? It can become scary, it can be frightening to trust. If you've been hurt, people are afraid to trust someone else. So those are all things that need to be worked on. 
Well, that's a good question here. So what if you've been burned a bunch of times and you want to go out there and you want to try again, but you're kind of scared because you've been burned? Are there any uh, sort of nuggets of advice you can give at, at to a person who is struggling with, with that? Absolutely. So I have layers of advice for that. Number one is you have to grieve, right? When someone is burned, there's a lot of emotions, anger, rage, sadness, frustration, grief that needs to be expressed. Otherwise, it's kind of like a volcano that erupts whenever something is going on. And so to allow expression to these feelings releases the person from them. Number two is to understand what happened. The lack of understanding usually leads to generalization. So if I don't understand why did this person did that to me, I'm going to come up with my own story, my own narrative and explanation that may not be accurate. But then I'm going to use that same story to apply to every kind of situation, which kind of creates people making, you know, not the most accurate analysis of the situation. And that's where therapy is helpful to help the person process, grieve, and also make sense of what happened. And then out of that is the what is learned, which then they can apply. Like from the beginning, I'm going to set my boundaries. These are the things I've experienced. And I need to know that you will not do that. Or if you do, it's over. Yeah. Wow. And it's tough to even just realize what your own boundaries uh, or fairness, like what's what's fair for me, uh, those boundaries are. But then to enforce them as well, because we may have other reasons for wanting to stay in a relationship. And yet there's this thing that's like, oh, I told myself that was a deal breaker. And now I'm actually experiencing it. And I can't seem to end the relationship uh, because this is what I told myself I would do. I end the relationship if this thing happens, but I'm not ending the relationship. Then it becomes a question of why. You know, we want to explore what is happening. Why is the thing that was a deal breaker is not a deal breaker? What has changed? Mm -hmm. There's a lot of answer to understanding. But people are dynamic. People change. But what is the cause, the reason, and the logic behind it will help them be able to make, you know, more accurate decisions for themselves whether to change their values, whether to change their decision, whatever that might be. Well, this happens in established relationships. So say you did get somebody that you liked and you even found them online or you found them in person and things are going great. And then there's something that happens like you're ghosting me. You're not texting me like you were before, or you find out there's some sort of infidelity or there's a verbal abuse, aggression, that kind of thing. And you had once said, this is a deal breaker. If this thing happens, I am going to break up with this person. But then when it does happen, you're so far into it and attached that it's really sort of difficult uh, to, to break up with that person. Or even, this is what I suggest, like, have them come into a counseling session as a collateral and we'll try and figure this out. And they're not willing to do that. And so typically my clients are at this point to where 
wow, I thought this person was really great. And then this really bad thing happened. And now where am I? Do you have any sort of uh, tips for a person who is experiencing that sort of letdown of suddenly being abandoned or having, you know, their, their deal breakers broke? So the first thing I ask them is, what are you afraid of? Right? Because mm. usually there's a fear. Sometimes it's, I'm afraid I will never find somebody else. Sometimes it's, I don't know how to take care of myself. Sometimes it's, I really love him. I know he can be better. So the reason the person is the same basically gives me the indication of what to do next. For right. one, the person may not be ready to leave. Want to, but not ready. So what do I, as a therapist, need to do to empower them to get there? Sometimes they haven't given up hope. So my job is to sit with them and allow them to go through the process and allow them to get there on their own. As I'm continuing to grow their sense of self and help them understand who they are, what they deserve, what they should have in life. And sometimes it's about forgiveness. And that's okay. I've had many clients who had infidelity and came back and changed their lives. That's totally fine. The question is, what do you want? And why is it important to you now? And what are you willing to pay for it? You know, when a client is in an abusive relationship, say, okay, that's fine. You're okay with this? Okay. What are you going to do when he pulls a knife out on you. What about then? I'm okay mm -hmm. with whatever you decide, right? It's very important for us to stay out of it. But get them to think about this further and further and further. Mm -hmm. Allowing them to make whatever decision they want, but being able to see the whole picture. Right. And they ultimately make their own decisions about where to go, but we present certain options and challenges to their thinking and their belief systems. And I think that's one of the most creative parts of being uh, a therapist or a psychotherapist and uh, helping people to open those doors and figure out, oh yeah, it's really clear now, this is what I need to do. It, whether it's stay in the relationship or to exit or to be able to try and, and fix it somehow, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And we can move also to the relationships that are not typically romantic, but we've got all of these relationships online and in our world, how we relate to each other. You and I talked about some of the political events in your own home country of Iran. If you want to speak to that, uh, I think it would be a really great time to do that now as we branch out a little bit broader and how people will relate in a political uh, and religious systems. I don't know a whole lot about this. I just know what you've told me in some articles that I've written, but I would love to just have you describe what has been happening in your home country and where you see that it might go and any other things that you might add. I appreciate this opportunity. So I'm from Iran and Iran is controlled by a very horribly cruel dictatorship. It's not what they call themselves, but that's what it is. Mm -hmm. 
Um, growing up in Iran, I lived with this duality of the religious sect, which honestly, it's not even religious. It is really a, whatever they have turned the religion into. I have a lot of respect for the religion itself and people's religion. But what's happening in Iran is not even religious uh, figures are protesting it as being unacceptable, uh, unacceptable and not based on beliefs. But so basically grew up in this oppressive, this uh, unequal, we're going to tell you how to be, you don't, you mean nothing through the government. And then progressive, you need to be the best version of yourself. You have, you know, you can dream whatever you can and you need to work for it. Believe in yourself, believe in humanity. You make something out of your life, give something back. Duality. Because Iran has a very... A very strong culture and a very old culture of civilization. So a lot of our values were being challenged by the regime and their quote unquote uh, religion and Islam, which is not really Islam, is not that kind of a way. So from there, I actually had to leave because I had very limited options for, for a future that I wanted. And when I came here, I had to start from zero, literally not even speaking the language, barely, you know, extremely poor, you know, building our lives back with this one belief that now I had the opportunities I didn't have and I had to make the best of it because I was given what my friends were not given, which is opportunity. So any kind of a struggle seems unimportant. Well, that was 21 years ago. Today in Iran, people are literally struggling to breathe. I am not kidding. I was talking to someone a week ago, and she said, when I'm leaving the house because the weather is so bad because of pollution, you literally can't see two feet ahead of yourself. There is problems with anything, whether financial, whether um protection, life, just like the livelihood of people has been taken. The rich has gotten super rich and the poor has gotten super poor. And then in the midst of it is when people, the Iranian woman about two months ago started to protest and then the men joined. And the response was killing and execution. So what is happening is that not only they killed women, men and children, and they are continuing to torture them. Now they're taking the same people who have protested and charging them with religious crimes that don't match in any ways and assigning them to execution. Now they have executed for at, le at least four people. So it has gone to that point of a breaking point. Today marks six months since the death of 22-year-old Iranian woman Masa Amini, who died while in custody of Iran's mort mortality police. The incident sparked unprecedented protest across Iran with 20,000 people arrested and more than 500 killed. NBC News Tehran bureau chief and correspondent Ali Arouzi joins us now for a look back on the events of the past six months and the implications for the future of Iranian society. Ali. 
Hi, good morning, Alison. That's right. I mean, look, the protests may have largely subsided now. They're nothing near the scale they were on uh, last year. But there's a deep-seated resentment and anger in Iran. The country doesn't function. People don't know what the future holds. And they are still livid with the government after what they had done. And you still see, still see small pockets of protests across the country and people chanting from their homes at nine in the evening against the government. Um, but it's still a very tough situation for people in Iran. Let's take a look at what's been happening over the last six months up until now. Six months ago today, 22-year-old Masa Amini was arrested by Iran's feared morality police. Her alleged crime? Violating the country's strict dress code. She died days later in the hospital. Her family say she had been beaten. Police have denied this. But for many Iranians, especially young women, this was a tipping point. Amini's death set into motion a chain of extraordinary events that have rocked the Islamic Republic to its core. Following Amini's funeral, Iranian women began to show their solidarity by ripping off their headscarves in protest. Within a week, it became clear that this was the most serious challenge to face the Islamic Republic since its inception in 1979. For four decades, the theocratic regime has ruthlessly enforced strict rules on Iran's population, with the hijab, mandatory for Iranian women, becoming a cornerstone of the regime's hold over the people. Making scenes like this one all the more astonishing. Women defiantly setting their headscarves on fire and cutting their hair in public as crowds chant women, life, freedom. Crowds of young men and even school children have taken part. An unprecedented display of unity. The government's reaction was nothing short of brutal. Security forces have fired live rounds at unarmed protesters. Skirmishes became daily events across Iran. At least 522 people have been killed, according to the US-based human rights group HRANA, including 70 minors. More than 20,000 arrests have been made, 100 of those on charges that can lead to a death sentence. At least four have been executed so far. These tactics have in some way paid off, for now. The protests have largely subsided, but already it's clear that there's been a fundamental cultural shift in Iran. Many women across the country refuse to wear the hijab, something that would have been unthinkable only seven months ago. Most recently, a crisis after thousands of schoolgirls reported symptoms of being poisoned across Iran, sparking further unease and anger amongst an already exhausted population. The authorities in Iran are trying to restore a semblance of normality. But for most Iranians, their country has turned into a dystopia. Uh, and, and Alison, just to give you an idea of just how they wrapped up a lot of these protests, Amnesty International published a report today after they've spoken to many, many witnesses in Iran, and they detailed horrific acts of violence and torture against children using beating, sexual assault, rape, electrocution against minors as young as 12 years old. So they used absolutely brutal tactics to bring those protests to an end, but it's left deep emotional and physical scars on much of the population and many people are wondering when this will flare up again.
Such an insightful and important report. Ali Aruzi, thank you so much. Do you have an update about what is happening currently about that? Because when we talked about it, it was in, I believe, November and December, and now it is January, Friday the 13th. What is happening to those people? There's the protesters, and then there's the people who have been jailed, correct? The people who have been jailed are being more and more assigned to executions, and they have been, um, what is that? They have been hanged. Four people mm -hmm. that I know of have been hanged. Um, they have now added rules that if you walk outside your house without covering your hair, you're going to be sentenced to prison. The, the tortures have gone up to the point that when people get released, they kill themselves. So things have gotten so much worse. It has become unbearable. And with that is the pollution in the air and the, you know, not having enough water, not having enough gas. Although we have tremendous gas resources, they're now talking about cutting down people's gas in the middle of Iran. It has four seasons. Like when we're talking about winter, we're talking about storms, the snow, like the whole thing. And imagine not having access to gas, not being able to warm up your house. Mm -hmm. People are at the brink of extinction in Iran. This is horrifying. And wow. we need the outside world to do something because they're being squished. <laughs> well, yeah, I was going to ask you, so what in your mind is the solution to all of this? It sounds awful. Some, I mean, the Iranian people are doing what they can in the country. But ultimately, this is an international crisis. Iran is in a very strategic place. Iranian regime, I shouldn't even call them Iranian, but that regime is supporting all sorts of terrorist actions. We know that they supported um, Russia in Ukraine war. That is not ending. It is in the best interest of all the other countries to step in and help free our people that are putting their lives at stake every single day. This is not something to stay quiet about. Yeah, it sounds like you've got an imbalance of power and vulnerable people who are actually really wanting uh, some freedom and they are not getting it. In fact, many of them are getting executed and others who are in protest are being jailed and you said, I mean, that whole, uh, that little phrase that you said, which is so important, is that we're on the verge of extinction in Iran. I had no idea. I mean, really, our people, the progressive people that I grew up with, the people who made me me, are being killed, simply just killed. I mean, there's no other word. Mm. Every time you step out, and then what happens is that they steal their bodies they don't even let their families bury them. I mean, I don't know how to, what to say anymore. It's just unbearable. So should the young people who are rising up and saying things, should they just stop speaking? Or what is, what is the solution here? I know you already presented one, but it seems almost like there's the powers that be and there are the people underneath who are really wanting to rise up and um, and do something about some injustice, but it doesn't seem to be working. Is there any other solution that you can maybe offer? 
So the solution is not to stop. We cannot stop. You know what my friend said? She said, everybody that is jailed, the first thing that people in prison ask them is, is it still going on? Because if it's not, they will hang me. Mm-hmm. So we're literally, there's no option to stop. But there's only so many people, and these people can only do so much. And they're doing absolutely everything. They're basically, and what is it that they're doing wrong? Standing and just saying that they're not okay with what's going on? That's a death sentence? Mm-hmm. You know, this is where the world has to step in because they're doing everything they can. They haven't stopped. Mm-hmm. And they have been paying the price. But this cannot end. Because if this ends, it's the end of an era, it's the end of a civilization to me. You know, and it's a really interesting correlation between just in any kind of abusive relationship that could happen between uh, domestic partners or friends. And it's, this is just a broader view of what are we going to do when we have certain values and they are not being respected. And what you're saying is that we shall not stop speaking out. Is that correct? That is what we are. Iranian people have gone through a lot of times where other countries, other civilizations, tried to took away our culture, our language, our being. We just are resilient that way. That is not an option. It is not an option as far as survival for any human being. So what I want to leave your listeners with is that every single person has a right to live, has a right to live in peace and harmony and have a right to express oneself. And no one can take that away. It may be a costly fight, but no one has a right to take it away. You know, sometimes I think that we have uh, similar values, like you said, peace and harmony, but we have different ways of trying to get at it. So one person's way might be protesting and or even silent and peaceful protest, and others might be to be able to say, hey, in order to get peace in the society, we need to take you and we need to jail you and possibly execute you. The values of peace and safety might be the same, but the the way in which we're going about it is just so different. And I, I really do believe that people have more in common than they have differences, but they they can reach an agreement or they can understand that this is the way we do things and it's on the extreme end and this is the way we do things. And I just wish there was a little bit more respect uh, for, for each other in that process. And I wanna add too, that if a person's values are peace and safety and they believe that the way to get to peace and safety is to take the people who are protesting, jail them and execute them, then that is an extreme way to be able to get peace and safety in your land. Because as Dr. Masha says, it's going to result or has been resulting in the possible extinction of human life, which is not okay. I think what's happening in Iran is really a good example of power and control. When we think about abusive relationships, 
when we think about domestic violence, when we think about bullying, all of these have one thing in common, and that is one person wanting to exert power and control over others for what has been done to them, and willing to do whatever it takes to keep that power and control. And that's the point of the problem, right? I have worked with gang members. I don't know if I told you. I've worked in a jail. I've worked with gang members. And a lot of work I did was to help them realize the power and control they wanted was not against somebody else. They didn't need to control or exert power over someone else. What they needed to recognize was the powerlessness they once felt and address that. Hmm. Yeah, so what you do is you present new ways of dealing with conflict and resolution. And we've talked about some solutions that you have talked about. And uh, so do you want to say a little bit about developing resilience and living up to your personal potential and how you teach people to do that? It starts with accepting that you're worthy, even if you don't feel like it. Mm. And what I say to people is, imagine a newborn was crying over there. What would you do? Majority of the people say, well, you know, someone's got to address that kid. Someone's got to go get the kid. And they say, well, why? What is that kid worth? What has that kid done to have value? And pretty much everyone says, well, it's a kid. They exactly. Mm-hmm. You were once a kid, too. What happened to your worth? And of course, I worked with gang members. So they said, well, I did these things. And I said, yeah, that's your burden. But that didn't take away your worth. It's a consequence you have to pay. There are things now that are on your conscience because of what you've done. But your human right to exist was never taken. But somebody else told you you're not worthy. And so it's this understanding that we have worth because we exist. What we need to do is to value that worth, empower ourselves, and heal from whatever caused us to feel like we don't have it. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes we don't have resilience because we are told that we are lesser than or we're told that we aren't uh, enough and or we believe that just in some things that we have put together on our own and we formulated that belief in our own mind. But what you say is so true is that we all have worth and value. We all have personal potential. It's just about getting a person to realize their own personal potential. And that in itself is is powerful. It's powerful to the individual. And it's also powerful for other people because they can see the example of a person who is really living up to their potential and really believing in their own personal power. What about trauma? So if a person has significant trauma and then they're going out into this crazy chaotic world that we're in right now, how, what sort of advice or sort of counsel or road would you lead these people down when you have pre-existing trauma and then you're faced with this world and or relationships, people who ghost you and or people who are abusive to you? What would you have to say about people who struggle with past trauma? So what I'd like to explain is that 
many of us have experiences that were traumatic. And what, what we go through, the experiences that we have, impacts the way we see the world. And it's almost like a lens through which you see everything else and understand everything else. What I do in therapy is that I really help people understand what are their traumas. And trauma is a moment of helplessness. I help them understand how they're trying to compensate for that moment of helplessness with whatever they're doing. But to realize that the original trauma is what needs to be addressed in order for them to become free. And I have seen this over and over again with many different populations that I have worked. That if you go back to, and it doesn't mean you have to go back and remember, but if you go back to that moment where they felt helpless for whatever reason, and give them the opportunity to rewrite that story. What I tell them is that imagine you as an adult showing up for that child you once were. What would you do? What would you say? It becomes such a healing moment. It's almost like as if they unlock. Mm-hmm. And a true potential comes. I can't tell you how many times I get messages from old clients saying, I can't believe I'm able to do these things. I'm not calling you because I want to talk to you. I'm good. I don't need you. But the things we have worked on, I can't believe I have these abilities. Yeah. You know, I literally did that twice in my sessions yesterday. It's just so crazy how people are so traumatized and they even go into shock. But that simple method of what you said is that imagine the adult you going to the child you and giving that child what they really actually want, need, saying the words, giving them space. It really helps them to form a corrective experience, which is quite beautiful to witness when you're a therapist and doing this work. Yes. Yeah. Well, Dr. Masha, I want to go ahead and put up your website here. It is www.heal-thrive.com. And I'm going to go ahead and share the screen so that we can look at your website. And uh, I really, really like uh, the way that it's designed. And so you can see the colors here and here's the home. And the one thing I really have noticed about this website is they have over here the therapy services. And this actually describes the job as of a therapist. And then over here, there's the coaching. So you can see the difference between the two. Some people don't understand that. So I thought it was really super cool that you put that on your website. Can you tell us a little bit about how uh, this website works and what kind of uh, tabs you want me to click on? We'll see if they work. Sometimes the technology doesn't work that great, but sometimes I'm lucky and it does. (laughs) So I want to highlight that we have two sets of services. So we do the therapy and coaching. And the idea of having both is that therapy allows people to deal with really underlying issues, the emotional issues, things that they're going through. But coaching is this kind of like hand-in-hand support to achieve your goals. So when I talk to people in therapy and I give them general ideas. I say, if they work with both of us, I say, okay, now go to the coach and tell them what I said and how you can put this in, you know, in action. And that's where the planning comes into place, the different skills that my, my husband is the coach. He teaches them the way he follows up with them, 
And then sometimes he sends them back to me and say, hey, you need to work on this person on self-esteem. And so it has this kind of like a wraparound service. In addition to that, we offer groups. Uh, Bruce is an ADHD coach, but he does work with everyone. Uh, we do have another therapist. Uh, if you click on, we have our testimonials, which are, you know, our clients being so kind and um, basically giving us feedback. I, I never put on initials or anything. It's just my own, you know, preference that everything stays absolutely 100% confidential. So I will only do anonymous. Uh, under the about, you can read about each of us and what we what we do what we specialize in our history and our stories uh coaching services and therapy services kind of like explains a little bit more in details you know what we do you know how we are different in a sense i think it's nice that we have both services not everyone uses both and it's but because it can become this like complementary uh ruse likes to call it uh, I'm the healing and he's the thriving because you know, I help people heal and he's like when they heal you need to send them to me so I can help them get to where they need to get um, mm -hmm. my personal favorite is if you go to the home so that little picture and the reason I chose heal and thrive as our name is because I believe in that I feel people come to us as that you know three in the water and as we start to work with them, it's really raising them up out of the water and getting them to a place that they're fully thriving. Nice. And I see it has over here that you could request a free consultation. And then uh, down here, there's some office locations. You were in Fountain Valley, California. Is That is in Southern California, correct? Correct. Yes. Yeah. Can you say it? Person and online. Oh, oh, okay. So you're in person and online? My, I am personally 99% online because of life, um, you know, demands. But my husband and our other uh, therapists, they do both. Um, we, what I want everyone to know is that give us a call. No one will go unattended. Wow. We are not one of those services that will not answer our calls. That goes against our ethics, actually, all of us. Call us. And we will answer. All right. Well, here's the free consultation. Hopefully you can see my little mouse cursor here. I did know that you wanted to talk more about what the work your husband does as an ADHD and life coach. If you want to speak to that, because I know a lot of our young people especially struggle with ADHD. ADHD is a very misunderstood diagnosis. And a lot of people think of it as a mental health diagnosis. I think of it as a way of being and a different neural network biology. ADHD can, is actually, is a gift in its own way. My daughter has ADHD and she's the most talented, artistic, fabulous five-year-old that struggles oh. with some basic stuff, right? So it is, when we think about ADHD, if we think of it as different rather than any other category that we can put it, we can really appreciate that people with ADHD have this really expansive view of the world and abilities that, for example, myself, I don't as a non-ADHD person. 
And it's the idea of understanding their potentials, their abilities, and helping them thrive in those ways, rather than focusing in the areas, executive functioning areas that they struggle with. Right. So what Roos does is he really appreciates what ADHD is and to understand how to use it to help the person thrive, but at the same time helping them understand and in essence compensate for the areas that ADHD is, you know, kind of interfering, you know, organization, planning, working memory, so on, like areas like, you know, being organized, remembering to do things, and in essence offering tools to compensate for that. He has been very helpful to help people, you know, get jobs, do well in a school. He works with a lot of kids and families, even help with relationships through this new and understanding and really providing the tools, specific day-to-day tools that they can use to overcome obstacles and get where they need to go. Yeah, and I see here that there is a specific tab that is for Ruse in his free 30-minute complimentary session. So it has a lot of information for those who are interested in learning more about ADHD and uh, reading about it and also how coaching works in this venue. And uh, I really appreciate uh, this this website for for sure. Thank you. I appreciate you sharing it. I hope you find it. So it's, if you go onto Facebook and do a search, don't do a group search, just do a regular search. It's psychotherapy HAT. And then also on Instagram at heal and thrive underscore PC. And so find Dr. Masha at uh, the website and on Facebook and on Instagram. Anything else you want to say about yourself, about your practice, and, or about relationships? Uh, it's been a great talk, I think, in just kind of a short amount of time. I really appreciate it. I think what I want to say to your listeners is that please don't be shy. Feel free to reach out. Every mm-hmm. one of you deserves the happiest life. And you may have had therapy, you may have your heart broken, you Sometimes they may not have worked. Know that my intention is to help people have fulfilling lives mm-hmm. and to get to where they need to get to. And one of the first things I say is that if you don't like something I say, if it's not working for you, tell me so I can help you. And if I can't, refer you. I want people to be successful. And so take that sometimes very difficult step of asking for help and reach out, we are here for them. And I thank you for that, for sure. And I know that I am of the same mind of when people email me or ask me for help, I'll always say, I will answer you. Yeah, it might take me a little while or whatever, but uh, that's my commitment to the people because I really do want them to find, my business name is Lokahi Counseling and Lokahi is a Hawaiian word for harmony, unity, and agreement. And that is what I built my business on. And and uh, that's what I stand for today. So it's so cool to find somebody who's so like-minded. Yes, yes, absolutely. I really appreciate your time mm-hmm. and having me here. It's such a pleasure to talk to you and to be here for your listeners. 
Yeah. And thank you so much for offering your expertise and your services. Uh, feel free to contact Dr. Masha and uh, her, her husband and they do work together and they do amazing things. So thank you so much for joining Calming the Chaos as a guest today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for your listeners. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to Calming the Chaos podcast. You can find all Calming the Chaos podcasts on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Music, Spotify, Amazon, and on YouTube. You can also go to www.calmingthechaospodcast.com for more information and to see all podcast episodes. Thanks so much for listening, and I look forward to sharing my next podcast episode with you. In the meantime, take care.